All right, open your Bible with me to Revelation 20. Going to start a topical study of eschatology, which means the study of last things. Study of last things. And this is the result of a lot of questions that we've gotten recently. We've done a study like a timeline study, but we're going to do this in a different way, just grouping the topics together and handling the study of last things or the end times prophecies. So in Revelation chapter 20, if you look at verse 10, we'll read a few verses. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, that's the great white throne judgment, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of these things, which were written in the books, according to their works." And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Imagine, picture a lake of fire. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You're reading about the end of time right there in Revelation chapter 20. God is currently setting things up for this great white throne judgment. Here's the question. Do you know what happens prior to this judgment? If not, why not? That's the question. Do you know what happens before the end of time? What are the events that are going to sequentially take place. And don't you think that you should? Don't you think as a church we should know what happens before the end of time? Some think that eschatology has little or no practical value for us today, but nothing could be further from the truth. Eschatology is very, very practical. Um, Eschatological statements in the Bible are always followed by practical application. Let me give you a few examples. I'll read 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Now here's the practical application. And every man that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. 2 Peter chapter 3, 10 and 11. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Here's the practical element. Seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Titus 2.13, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
A great Bible teacher from yesteryear, Dwight Pentecost, he said this, The second coming is always connected to daily life in the Scriptures. The second coming being an eschatological event. Now, here's some topics that we're going to cover. First of all, eschatology is the, the study of last things. And the way that you get that is the... Yes, yeah. And in Greek, eschatos, if you, if you uh, put Greek word or letter for letter equivalent for the English letter, eschatos, that just simply means last. And then ology is, is uh, obviously the study of. So the study. So between those two things, you get the study of last things. When you're studying eschatology, it's the end times. It's end times type prophecy. We're dealing with the rapture of the church, the great tribulation, the resurrections of the dead. There's more than one. Uh, The kingdom age, the final judgments, the new heaven and the new earth, eternity. So God's purpose in all of these things, God's purpose in history is to glorify himself. And really, it's just one great stage for God to bring glory to himself. God is ultimately glorified in putting away all of his enemies, which we read about in Revelation chapter 20. The, the unholy trinity of the Antichrist, which is Satan incarnate. Satan in a human body. Satan is a copycat. He copies everything that God does. God was incarnate in a human body. Well, Satan's going to do the same thing in the tribulation period. The Antichrist, the beast, the false prophet, these are going, this unholy trinity is going to finally be put into the lake of fire, and God wins in the end. Amen. No matter how wicked this world may be, and, and it's going to get worse, God wins in the end. Prophecy, that's another word we'll use a lot. Prophecy is defined as history in advance. I like that definition. History in advance. Think about that just a second. It's history, but it hasn't happened yet. It's history in advance. You say, what do you mean? Isaiah chapter 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God, there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. That's our God. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So we draw a timeline because that's how we see it. And here's God back in, back before Genesis 1.1. You know, if we put Genesis 1-1 right here, here's God back here before it, living in eternity past. It'd be like a symbol for eternity, or actually it should be this way. Here's God back there in eternity past, and God is saying all of these things are going to happen. Calling out a people, a chosen nation, 
bringing forth a redeemer, bringing forth the oracles, bringing forth, uh, accomplishing the redemption of the lost. The, the, not the church, the church wasn't prophesied, but it was in the mind of God. But having the church <clears throat> in the mind of God, having the rejection and the suffering of the Savior that we've talked about, having the, uh, the kingdom, the tribulation period, the kingdom age, all of this stuff, God declared it ahead of time. His words have been settled in heaven forever. Yeah, and it's a great mystery. And he, he, he just tells us enough. And our job is just to take God at his word and believe what we read. Our job is not to understand it all but to believe what, he re- what we read. So God is declaring all of this stuff from the beginning. That's prophecy, history in advance. Saying, my counsel shall stand, I will do all my pleasure. We're also going to mention uh, dispensational teaching or dispensational theology. Uh, that can be defined as this. <clears throat> Let me just write this down and take my time here for just a second. Uh, we believe in dispensationalism or uh, dispensational theology. It's spelled this way, D-I-S-P-E-N, dispensation. If you think of a candy machine, you're going into the Mexican restaurant and they got that big candy machine with the gumballs in it, and if you put a couple of quarters in there, which is way too much for a gumball, that's ridiculous. But anyways, turn that, and then the gumball goes all the way around that slide, all the way down to the bottom, and it dispenses you. Anybody want gum right now? Who wants bubble gum? It dispenses gum. So dispensation is like God dispensing truth to us. And God dispenses truth in different ways to different people at different times. So here's a simple definition for this. Dispensationalism. God deals with people in different ways at different times. God deals with people in different ways at different times. In the church age, God is dealing with us differently. Pure grace in the church age. Now, if you don't get saved in the church age, Jesus comes back and takes His church and you're stuck here, and you got to go through the tribulation period, God deals differently with men and women and boys and girls in the tribulation period, then you are in danger of taking the mark of the beast because you're going to go hungry. And you're going to be awful hungry, and when people get hungry, people do crazy things. People will rob their neighbor blind if they're hungry enough. You know it's true. People will come out of the cities and rob people in the rural areas when they get hungry. Things are different in the tribulation. If you want to get saved in the tribulation, do not take the mark of the beast. Don't get it in your right hand or in your forehead. Don't take it. And uh, you've you got to believe the gospel, and you have to endure to the end of the tribulation period. Endure to the end. That's different. In the kingdom age, the millennial kingdom, God deals differently with people in the millennial kingdom than he does now. You say, what's different about that in the millennial kingdom? Well, I could show you a place where it's illegal to teach the Bible. It's illegal to evangelize. You say, is that right now? The way that people act in church, you would think that it is. (laughs) 
It's not illegal right now <clears throat> to, to evangelize and to teach the Bible. But in the millennial kingdom, it will be. If you do that, you'll be in trouble with the king, King Jesus. You'll get in trouble. You're not allowed to evangelize and teach. There's only one outlet for teaching uh, during that time, and that's through the Lord. And you're not allowed to say, no man is allowed to say, know the Lord, for they shall all know the Lord, is what the Bible says in the millennial kingdom. So dispensational teaching is simply taking God at his word, believing literally what we read. When you pick up the Sunday morning uh, newspaper, right, uh, if, you, if you do that anymore, or if you go on a website and get your news, when you read that news, you're not looking for some kind of mystical secret explanation or interpretation of what you're reading. You read it literally. You, you take it that this editor or this, this uh, reporter wrote this article and they meant it literally, what they're saying, you know. So you read the Bible a lot in the same way that you read the newspaper. Now, in, dis in dispensational uh, theology, we make a distinction, for example, between the church and national Israel. Okay? So you have the church on one hand. You have the church, which is... That's everybody who's saved. If you're Chinese and you're a Chinese believer meeting in a house church and Xi Jinping is, is uh, sicking the dogs on you and, and breaking up your house church right now and, and, and imprisoning your pastor and forcing you to, to incorporate your church into the three-self Chinese accepted communist church that they say is Christianity but it's not. If you're over in China right now and you're saved... You're in the church, which is his body, just like I am, or anybody here that's saved today. We're all in the universal, invisible body of Christ, which is the church. And then you have also the local church. Well, you've got a difference between the church and between national Israel or the nation of Israel. As dispensational believers, we believe in a distinction that these two things, they are different. So we don't ever, ever mix them. There are other people who do. And when they do, this is what they do. You remember all the curses and the blessings back in Numbers, back in Moses' Torah, the first five books of the Bible? I'll bless you if you do this. Right? I'll bless you in the field. I'll bless you in the city. I'll bless you in your home. Bless you with children. All this stuff, if you serve me and obey me. If you disobey me and break the covenant that we have, the Mosaic covenant. If you disobey me, then I will curse you. I'll curse you in the field. I'll curse you in the city. I'll curse you in the home. So on and so forth. I'll curse you up to the fourth generation. Right? Generational curses. Well, people who say that they say, basically, national Israel blew it and the church replaces Israel. When they do that, they, they, have, uh, they, they have something that's pretty convenient for them because they say, we claim all of the blessings under the Old Testament. So we got all the Abrahamic blessings. You know, if you get saved and if you're living right, God's going to give you a Cadillac and you're never going to be sick and all this kind of stuff. But yeah, but you know what they do? They say, National Israel took all the curses. That's awful convenient. No, it don't work like that. 
God's not done with the nation of Israel. That's different about what we believe and say what about uh, some other people might believe. And I'm not going to try to make any labels right now. It's not important. All right. So put your finger in Genesis chapter 12 real quick. Put your finger in Genesis chapter 12. I know we've done this before, but we'll do it again. Put your finger in Genesis chapter 12, and then take another finger and put it in Acts chapter 10. And put your thumb in Acts chapter 10. And uh, I'm going to brag on these precious kids here. Um, they have been memorizing verses of the Bible, out of the King James Bible, in school, doing real good. And so I'm real proud of them for that. And they're learning where to go in the Bible. You got it? You got Acts chapter 10? Acts chapter 10. So it's Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians. Yeah, Acts chapter 10. So look at that chunk. Look at that chunk right there. All the way up to Genesis 12, God had been dealing with just the nations of the world. 2,000 years. Yeah, 2,000 years from Genesis 1 to Genesis 12. 11, 11 chapters, 2,000 years. Isn't that something? And then God gets to something He really wants to zoom in on and deal with in more detail. And so He deals in another 2,000 years right here. This back here, there is no Hebrew, no Jew. But this right here, from Genesis 12 to Acts chapter 10, this is all dealing with the nation of Israel, not the church. This is all the nation of Israel, not the church. Now, you take this, and you go all the way to Revelation from Acts chapter 10, and you go to Revelation chapter four and you're dealing with the church. I'll give you a, I'll give you some finer points on that later on, but I just don't wanna don't want to get into too much detail just yet. But look at that. Look at the size of that. And if I had like a Gideon Bible, you can really see it. This has got a lot of notes in it and stuff. That's to the church. Directed to the church doctrinally. Doctrinally. Now, this whole chunk here is not directed at national Israel. It's directed to the church. You know what happens after Revelation 4? You will not find the church. Not one time is the church mentioned, Revelation 4, all the way to 22. Not one time. Because the church isn't here for it. Church is gone. Our blessed hope. We went up to be with the Lord. Now, that is true. What I just said was true. Here's just one little finer point. All of this Bible, we should read it. We do in church, right? We do it from Genesis to Revelation. We should read it from Genesis to Revelation. And every day there can be something in there that blesses your soul. There's something in every page of Scripture. I can find something in Leviticus. It's kind of hard, but I can that really blesses my soul because it can all speak to me spiritually and devotionally and I can learn things about history. This is a history book. 
I can learn things about history, but it's not all aimed at me and the church doctrinally, okay? There's a difference. So dispensations, we make divisions. We, we show what things are different and what things are the same. The Abrahamic covenant, don't have to turn there, but Genesis 15, that covenant, let's... Uh, one thing I like about this board, I hope it doesn't annoy you. I'm not trying to be Mr. Teacher or anything like that. It just helped me to learn when I was in Bible college. This is how they did it, and it helped me. Um, the Abrahamic Covenant. Okay? What is all involved in that? Land. Land is involved in that. God promised land from the Nile in Egypt over to the Euphrates River. And you know what? Uh, This thing, it covers land. It covers his seed, right? That Abraham would have a seed like the sand of the sea and like the stars of heaven. This man who had no children. He said, you're going to have a promise of seed. And there's going to be a covenant blessing upon not just the land, not just the seed, but there's going to be a covenant blessing upon you, and you're going to be, you're going to do well. You're going to be wealthy, powerful, all this kind of stuff. And you know what about this? It was, this was, this is very, very important. Covenants can either be conditional or unconditional. This was unconditional. If you read it in your spare time, Genesis chapter 15, unconditional. You say, what's that mean? It was not conditioned upon anything Abraham had to do or not do. It was, it was unconditional on man's side. Basically, God says, I'm going to do this for you, and there are no conditions to this contract. I'm going to do this. And remember what we read. Hath he, not, hath he said and shall he not do it? God does what he says. Okay. So what was involved in that? Well, it's very, very important for us. The land. You know what happened? This land deal has not been fulfilled yet. That is why God cannot be done with the nation of Israel. That is why what is, what is cooking in the Middle East right now is about ready to boil over the pot and things are going to get bad, but Jesus is going to come back and he's going to give Israel their land in the kingdom age. They will get their land. Okay? I want you to turn to this one, if you would, with me, please. Jeremiah 31. There are some people who think that we just, that God got rid of the Jews. And so they try to get rid of the Jews in their theology. Sometimes their theology spills over into uh, civil life, like in the uh, um, Holocaust. There was a theology behind that that said that the Jews are not God's chosen people anymore, that they are just the offscouring of the world. They were hated. And, And it's, yeah. Yes. You have to have the Jews. 
Yes. Prophecy, you have to have them for one thing, that unconditional covenant, Abrahamic covenant. For another thing, prophecy has to be fulfilled concerning. And you can't fulfill the prophecy without Israel. So somebody has called them the indestructible Jew. And I've picked up on that, and that, I put that in my pocket, and I use that in my teaching. They are the indestructible Jew. You can't get rid of them. So, yeah, 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Yes. And uh, Hitler, that's what he was trying to do. And he had the power to make it happen, did he not? Um, that's what he tried to do, but he couldn't do it. You know why? Jeremiah 31, 35. That's why he couldn't do it. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances, what ordinances? The sun, moon, and stars. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. That's the seed. And you know what? You can't get rid of the sun and the moon and the stars. And no more can you do that than you can get rid of the Jews. They're indestructible. And he goes on to say again, Thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. So he's saying, I won't cast them off, not forever. So it was prophesied. I could show you quote after quote after quote after quote that I have of Bible teachers of yesteryear, Bible teachers in the 1800s and earlier, who said Israel must uh, be restored. Israel must become a nation again. Because if not, as they were studying the scriptures, if not, prophecy can't be fulfilled. So they said it's got to happen. And everybody laughed. Because that was not the theology of the day. And sure enough, what happened in 1948? What happened in 1967? So it's exciting. Guys, this book is not written by men. Man can't do this. This book is filled with prophecies that against all odds, they come true. Right down to the detail, every one of them. And uh, just like Jesus, with, with, he could prophesy and predict and tell you how he was going to die and when it was going to happen. Now think about that for just a second. Can you tell me how you're going to die? No, you can't. You can't tell me how you're going to die. You say, yeah, I can. I'm, I'm, I'll tell you, I'm going to die by drowning. I'm going to jump in the Ohio River. Well, Jesus said, I'm going to die, and somebody else had to do it. He didn't, just, he didn't kill himself. Somebody did it to him. Can you tell me how you're going to die and when you're going to die? No, you can't. That's just one example. Okay, and Jesus could tell you. He could tell you the details. He could tell you that they're going to shoot craps for my clothing. Like they're going to play a game. They're going to gamble for my clothing. So, and w- when we were over there in, in uh, Israel, we went into the church of the flagellation, which is supposed to be where Jesus was condemned and whipped. And they say probably most likely it is. And on the floor in one of those small 
church buildings, the Roman Catholic sanctuary, they had a tile on the floor, which they say probably does not date back to then, but it, it has a, a game, a Roman game carved out on the stone, and they said that's it, that's what they did. They drew this board game, and they, they took little things like dice, and, and they'd take their die or their dice, and they would roll it on this board, and depending on how it turned out, the Roman soldier would say, I don't want to go take the next shift, and, and he said, how about you shoot with me and we'll gamble, and if, if I win, I'll go do it. If, if I lose, you go do it, something like that. And they would, you know, handle decisions that they had to make and things like that. Well, they were trying to figure out who gets Jesus' clothes when he dies because he had this tunic that didn't have any seam, and they wanted it, so they shot on this little game, which was pretty interesting to see it. It was pretty, pretty interesting. But uh, Jesus could tell you that that was going to happen before it happened. Not only that, but it was prophesied like, I don't know how many years, six or seven hundred years before it happened in this book. So it's an amazing book. This is a miracle book, and the Jews are a miracle people, and God's not done with them. All right, so we're going to deal with, I'll write these down real quick. In the Wednesday nights to follow, we're going to deal with, I'm not going to do it in a timeline fashion. I'm just going to write them up here. Um, you're going to get, you're going to get not a college level. I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to try to teach it like I teach it to a church with a practical application. But this is what you're going to get. And it's not going to be uh, watered down. You're going to get real serious Bible teaching if you'll come on Wednesday night. We're going to talk about the church age. We've talked about that a lot, so we won't cover that a whole lot. And then what's the next thing to happen? It's the rapture of the church. We're going to talk about that. There are people these days who are starting to turn away from this teaching. This right now, this is the way that most evangelicals believe. But they're starting to turn away from it. And um, they're starting to turn, turn away from solid biblical teaching. But Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes... Shall he find faith on the earth? The answer to that question is obviously, it's a rhetorical question. He's not looking for you to raise your hand or tell him. He's saying, I'm not going to find much faith on the earth when I come back. And they, they say that, um, you know, uh, Ligonier Ministries, you ever heard of that? Uh, R.C. Sproul. They do a thing every year, and they just, they pull just evangelical Christians, church members. They pull them, and they ask them these different questions. Do you believe that Jesus... Uh, was virgin born? Do you believe that he is divine, uh, that he is God and man? Do you believe that Jesus, uh, um, uh, do you believe in Jesus' atonement as the only payment for sin? They'll ask all these basic questions. One of them is this, do you believe that the Bible is inspired, that it is the very word of God? Or do you believe that it's just another religious book? Guess what happened the last time they did that? 63% of those evangelical church members, 63% said they believe it's just another religious book. You say, what's that? Falling away. A falling away. That's apostasy. Apostasy means you were standing for the truth and you fell away from it. That's what's happening, just falling away from it. So we'll talk about the rapture. And when the Lord comes back, 
I, we got to keep this going, right? Got to keep teaching this. When he comes back, I want him to find some churches that are still sticking with the stuff. What about the rapture? Well, this is under attack too. But the, we believe in a pre-tribulational, pre-tribulational rapture. That is, Jesus is coming back before the tribulation. We'll study the judgments. The judgments. So, you have uh, the judgment seat of Christ. That's what's going to happen after the church is raptured. We're judged for our works. We're rewarded for the things that we do. If you bring a cold glass of water to somebody in the name of Jesus, you will not lose your reward. You'll be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ, excuse me. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about, we've already talked about that a good deal, but we'll review it. The difference between that and the great white throne judgment. So we'll talk about that, the judgments, the great tribulation. Okay, that is, let me just ask you a question. Who is the great tribulation for? Who is God dealing with in the great tribulation? The Jews. Yes. So the great tribulation period, remember I said God deals with people differently at different times. That's dispensationalism. God is dealing with the Jews. That's what that's all about. You just said before. Yes. Yeah. Right. And we'll answer questions like, will many be saved? Uh, can... Can Gentiles, can New Yorkers that are not Jewish be saved during the tribulation? Or can it only be Jewish New Yorkers that can be saved during the tribulation? Um, we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about um, what does the Bible say about a one-world government? What does the Bible say about a one-world currency? We'll talk about stuff like that. Then, the next thing that happens on God's prophetic uh, timeline is the Millennial Kingdom. So, two L's and two N's. The Millennial uh, Kingdom or Age. If you listen to R.C. Sproul, he goes back and forth on whether or not he believes that the Millennium is a literal 1,000 year reign of Christ on this earth. He's gone back and forth. Um, that's because... I think because John MacArthur believed in a millennial or believes in a literal millennial kingdom. Uh, and so that might be John, John MacArthur's dispensational, by the way. Um, the millennial kingdom, and that will deal with the future of the Middle East. All right. Now, we have a few minutes left. Um, you hear a lot of talk about the West Bank today in the news. Never mind the West Bank. What about the East Bank? You ever heard somebody say that? Because it's not just the West Bank that God wants to give to the Jews. It's all that area that they call Palestine, which is not the biblical name for the land. It's not Palestine. That's a name that's derived from the Philistines. Uh, that is Israel. That's their land. But not just that. It's going across that whole desert, Fertile Crescent right there all the way over to where Iraq is today. That will all belong to the Jews and the kingdom, all the way over the Euphrates. All right? Um, now listen, uh, we'll talk about resurrections, and we'll also give you some maps needed for this study. So you'll get quite a bit if you come. 
Uh, now, listen, here's one last thing. I'll be real brief. We might actually get out before the hour's over. Why am I a pre-trib man? Okay? You, you have different beliefs about the tribulation. And, yeah. a, and as you folks are out talking with people, maybe with a Seventh-day Adventist, or with a, if you're talking with somebody who's possibly of like a, the, the new Reformed crowd, um, Reformed meaning Calvinistic, uh, you, you might run into some people. They're, they're out there. I've, I've run into one young guy. Now, now, don't do this. Don't say, I can't have fellowship with you. you know? <laughs> There's something wrong with you because you don't believe exactly like me. I don't do that. I was talking with this one young guy um, at a wedding, the wedding reception that we did um, for Travis and, and for, uh, now I'll see Brianna. I was about ready to lose it. We were at a wedding reception talking with this young guy, and he heard one of my sermons online. He's like, he gave me a nice compliment about it, and he told me he's a Christian. He goes to church somewhere over in wherever he was, Rutland, I think, somewhere around in there. And he talks about what he, the people he listens to. And I know by the people that he listens to, I know what he believes, right? I'm not going to stand there and argue with him about his position on the tribulation. I'm just not. I'm going to have fellowship with him. Uh, if I can, and get to know him, and then you get a, to a certain point, and you're, as you, you kind of earn the chance to kind of go back and forth, and if somebody asks you, why do you believe that, or something like that, that's what usually happens, like with this guy that I met from Olford Ministries, uh, the Olford Biblical Institute for Preaching, he doesn't believe like I believe, he believes more like, um, uh, John Piper or uh, some of these famous these celebrity preachers that you hear, um, a little bit more like R.C. Sproul. And at first, you know, if you get two preachers together, you know what's going to happen, right? They're going to argue. I'm just not going to be that guy. I'm not going to be like that. He, after a while, he asked me, why do you believe like that? Well, we've gotten to that point now to where we can talk about that, and I'll talk about why I do. So, and then the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I'm, I'm right, of course, right? I'm right, and he's wrong. The Holy Spirit can give him light on that, right? So, um, here's what you have on the tribulation. You have pre-trib. So, Jesus is coming back before the tribulation. So, that'd be like this. Jesus comes back here, then you have seven years. Then you have po, or, uh, mid-trib, and there are some nutcases out there teaching this. And see, I, I won't be very kind here in our church, but if I was talking to him, I wouldn't call him a nutcase. But I'll just say, if you want to go through the tribulation, go ahead. And then you have post-trib. Mid-trib means Jesus comes back in the middle, uh, like uh, before the wrath happens. Um, and then you have post-trib. Post-trib just means that Jesus comes back after, at the end of the tribulation, and you have to endure to the end. You'll have different people. I'm not going to name labels. I'm pre-trib. Here's seven reasons quickly. I won't give you all the details. Just seven reasons. I'll just list them, and we'll pray and close. Number one, the tribulation period concerns Israel, not the church. That's my first reason. Number two, the missing church in the book of Revelation from chapter 4 on, 
the missing church. Number three, we're not appointed to wrath. The tribulation is the time of God's wrath being poured out on this wicked world. We're not appointed to wrath. Number four, the eminence of Christ's return. Paul believed Christ could return at any moment. If all of a sudden a man stood up and declared peace and somehow got the Arabs and the Roman Catholic Church and... When I say Arabs, I realize that there's different groups within that. There's Arabs, Muslims, Turks, and stuff like that. Let's just say the Muslims, the Roman Catholic Church, and the Jews. Some man who's some genius politically gets these three together and then allows Israel to have their temple and worship on the mount, and he's able to accomplish that. I know he's the Antichrist. Therefore, I know seven years and we're out of here. Paul didn't teach that. Paul preached the eminency of Christ. At any moment, Christ could return. So those two things don't go together. Number five, the rapture is a comforting doctrine, Paul said. It's a comforting doctrine, meaning it's not comforting to say you're going to go through the tribulation and starve to death. That's not comforting. Number six, tribulation salvation versus church age salvation. They're different. I'm not worried about taking a mark. I'm not going to lose my salvation if I take a mark. Number seven, lastly, there's symbolic parallels. There's symbolic parallels. Like the days of Lot and Noah both have one thing in common. Um, The righteous are taken out just before the judgment comes. Noah and his family was taken out before the watery judgment. Lot and his family were taken out before the judgment, before those cities were burned by God. So there's a picture, uh, there's a picture in uh, tip- typological teaching in the Old Testament. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, 13. Yes, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. That's where it says we're not appointed under wrath. Re- go home, read 1 Thessalonians 4 if you feel scared about this. Yeah, it's a blessed hope. It doesn't say wrath because Greek says it's wrathful. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so the word rapture is not in the Bible, but the teaching is. Kind of like the Trinity. Yeah. yeah. Caught up. Caught up, yes. So First uh, Thessalonians 5 is we're not appointed under wrath. 4 is the rapture. Okay. Anyone else real quick? Can you believe I got it done before the hour? Can you believe it? I try to do that, and it's not because I'm not like following God's leading. It's just I want to be sensitive to you and... and uh, Unless I just really believe I can't shut it down, I almost always try to. Let's go ahead and pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for the Word of God. Lord, I pray that we would not be puffed up in knowledge, but that this would motivate us to love you more, motivate us to be a better witness for Jesus Christ. Lord, ultimately, we can't save anyone, so I just pray that you'd use our life, our witness, our testimony, and the gospel preaching here and tracks. Use it for the salvation of souls. Again, Lord, we think of the lost, think of the people that we love. We want to see them get saved. Once again, Lord, save their souls. In Jesus' name, amen.